But uh, family pictures, we all know they are, they're important. Uh, you don't want your kids to get to college age and say, uh, you know, mom and dad, uh, where are some pictures from when I was in the fourth grade? And you're like, well, we had iPhone 6s back then, but now we're like iPhone 45 and Instagram went out of business and we don't have any record of your being alive until this very moment. We all know that family pictures are important, but family pictures are also a lot of work. You have to do a lot of planning. You have to decide where are we going to get our picture taken? What is the vibe of the picture? Are we going to be on the beach in short khaki shorts with blue buttoned up shirts, kicking sand in one another's faces? Are we going to be sitting on tractors to give everyone an impression that we are farm people, even though we are not? Are we going to be in a, a forest woods holding hand? Are we going to be in a snowy scene? What is the vibe of our picture? Who is going to take our picture? And then most importantly, what are we going to wear in the picture? Are we going to to all match? Are we going to be all wearing the same shirt? Are we just going to be in the same color scheme as one another? Or are we just freestyling it? What is the uh, picture going to be like? It is a lot of work to get a family picture. And then the day of your family picture is total chaos. Like if you feel like your life is not going well at the moment, I want you to go to the Sears and just hang outside the family picture area and you will see family self-destructing right in front of you. You'll feel bad for them. You'll feel great for yourself because taking a family picture is chaos, especially if you have young children because all you're trying to do is to get everyone to look in the same general vicinity of the camera. That's it. You don't care if they smile. You don't care if they have their finger up their nose. If they're just looking towards the camera, that's good enough. And around the the edge of the photographer, you see the adults uh, acting like fools to try to get the kids to look towards the camera. I mean, they're snapping their fingers. They're making all kinds of noise like they're calling in wild animals. It's chaos. It's chaos. And then before you know it, it's over. Easter Sunday can feel a lot like that. It's a lot of work. A lot of planning. You look great today. I know you didn't just throw that on. You've been planning that for weeks, for months. You went and shopped. You got some outfits. Your kids are looking great over in the kids' ministry. It's a lot of work, but today was chaos. You woke up. Did you wake up on time? Were you a little bit late? You threw everybody into the car. You realized that your you know, little boy, you told him to fix his hair. He didn't even do anything to his hair. He said he fixed it. You know he didn't because he's got that little thing sticking up in the back because that's just what little boys do. They got that little thing sticking up. At the back of their head. It's just chaos. But before you know it, this will be over. We'll be back in our cars and we'll be on our way home and we will be able to check off another Easter Sunday. But before we do that, I just want us to pause and come to the word because the resurrection of Jesus, the empty grave and tomb of Jesus, it speaks to us today. And it's going to say two things. First of all, that empty grave is going to tell us a lot about who Jesus is and it's going to tell us a lot about who we are. And before the moment is over, all the chaos is over, we're back on to whatever is next. Those two things would be important. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, we're parachuting down into the middle of one of the first church's first songs. They would have sang this together or recited this together. In the second half of verse 18, it says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead? Does that 
mean that he was the first one to be resurrected? It's not. In fact, in the Old Testament, we have three stories of resurrection. In 1 Kings, the prophet Elijah raises a young man from the dead. In the Second Kings, in the beginning, uh, the prophet Elisha raises another young man from the dead. At the end of 2 Kings, there's a normal funeral and burial service happening and while they're burying this man, they look out on the horizon and there's an enemy army, uh, a, a band of, of bandits that's coming for them. And they want to get out of there. So they take this dead body and they just throw it into the tomb. But it happened to be the tomb of the prophet Elisha. And the Bible says when that dead body hit the bones of Elisha, it came back to life. Three resurrection stories in the Old Testament. And then we have the resurrection stories of Jesus pre his own resurrection story. He raised a young man from the village called Nain from the dead. Uh, he raised Jairus' daughter, a little girl from the dead. You remember he, he tells the crowd, quit crying, she's only sleeping. And they mock him, they laugh at him because they know that she's dead. Yet when he comes out of the room, she's alive. Uh, Lazarus, his friend who, whom he loved, he raised him from the dead. At the moment Jesus died, the Bible tells us, when he gave up his last voice, his last breath, his spirit... It says that there was an earthquake that happened, and that earthquake, it shattered the tombs around Jerusalem. And on the morning that Jesus was resurrected, the bodies in those tombs that had been opened, they came back to life and then made their way back into the city of Jerusalem. So when it says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, we know it's not talking about order, uh, chronological order. What's it talking about? Another way to use firstborn is importance. And that's what this hymn means in Colossians chapter 1. When it says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, it means of all the people who have ever died and been raised from the dead, everyone who's ever lived, Jesus is the most important. He has authority. He has supremacy. He is the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. Now, when we think firstborn as we're reading the scripture Maybe the word inheritance popped into your mind because those two words are closely associated together in the scripture. Firstborn and inheritance. I have three children. I mention them almost every single week. I don't have an interesting life so that I kind of have the same stories over and over again. Uh, Jackson is 10. Uh, Annabeth is uh, seven and Willa is five months. I brought a picture of them because they're incredibly beautiful and I'm incredibly proud of them. Uh, but you see Jackson, he's 10 year old. Now Jackson is going to charm you with his giggle. He loves to laugh. In fact, he's in here and he's laughing right now. So fantastic. And if you just watch him laugh, then you can't help but laugh and he will charm you with his laugh. And for a 10 year old boy, he has an incredible, incredible set of manners. I don't know what he'll be like when he's 16, but right now I'm thanking God for that. He's got a great heart, great set of manners. And Annabeth is seven, and she is going to win you over with the force of her personality. She is a star in every way, and when she walks into the room, wherever the attention was, it is now on her. She is winsome and charismatic, and she will charm you, no problem. And then there's Willa. Willa is five months old, and Willa will charm you just because she's one of the most beautiful babies who's ever lived on planet Earth. And uh, because Willa is so much younger than our big kids, uh, she's become our family mascot. Uh, that's how we describe her. That's how we think about her. We just take her everywhere with her. She is our banner that we fly whenever we can. In fact, sometimes when we're eating at our kitchen table, it's round. We just take Willa's little seat and we place it in the middle of the table and we just eat all around her because we like her. She's the center of our focus and attention right now. So I have three kids. They're all lovely and perfect in every way, of course, just like your children 
are. But when it comes time for Amanda and I to pass on from this life, hypothetically speaking, if we have any inheritance to pass down to them, we're going to divide by three. You know, because that's what you do. You divide by three. And you're going to divide by two. You're going to divide by four. Because that's what you do. You, you know, we, you don't favor one of your kids. Or maybe you do. Maybe you're like, I actually like one of them a lot more than the other. And <laughs> I'm going to give them everything we have. And we'll be dead so they can fight it out amongst themselves. I don't really care. Right? But you're not going to do that. You're going to divide by the number of children you have there. But it wasn't the same in the first century. If you were the firstborn, you got the lion's share of the inheritance. And it wasn't because you had more favor or you were more loved. It was more practically speaking. You know, most of these families, they had some kind of small business that would provide for their immediate family and a lot of times their extended family. So imagine some of you are business owners and entrepreneurs. Imagine dividing your business by three in every generation. It would never survive. And then your family's not provided for, your extended family is not provided for. So as a matter of practically speaking, the firstborn would get the lion's share of the inheritance, but also what would come with that is the expectation that they would keep that family farm running. They would keep that family business running so it can be a blessing to their entire extended family. So firstborn and inheritance, they go together in the scripture. So what are we talking about? Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. What did he inherit? Hebrews chapter 1 tells us two things that he inherited because he was the firstborn from the dead. Long ago, verse 1, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. There's our inheritance word. And through him, he made the universe. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact expression of his nature. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became higher in rank than the angels, just as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. So two things Hebrews tells us Jesus inherited. Number one, he inherited all things. And number two, he inherited a superior name. He inherited all things, which is good news for us today, because that means Jesus is able to deliver to you what he has promised he would deliver to you. Because he has received all things. Therefore, he doesn't have to ask anybody's permission to give you what he's promised you. He's able to do what he says he's able to do. And he's able to give to you what he says he will give to you. And he's made you some pretty significant promises. He's promised you eternal life. He's promised you that you could be a son of God or a daughter of God when you believe in his name. He's promised you an abundant life. He's promised you that when you pray, you will be heard. He's promised you that he will always be with you. He's promised you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he's promised you he will return. And he is able to make good on those promises. Because the grave is empty, there are no promises that are empty. He's able to give you what he says because he has inherited all things. But he's also inherited a superior name. I feel like, I'm not bragging here, but I feel like I have a great name. My name is Curtis Wayne Jones. Anybody, any other Waynes in here? Just anybody feeling the Waynes? No, I'm alone, but I'm cool. I'm cool with it. We got one over here. One over here. One, oh, we got a couple. We're going to have a little prayer meeting at the end. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> My name is Curtis Wayne Jones, and the, the name Wayne is, 
is favored on the Jones side of my family tree. My great-grandfather, his name was Virgil Wayne Jones. So if any of you are pregnant right now and looking for names, you might want to reach for that. Virgil Wayne Jones. Virgil had three sons, uh, Jack Wayne, that's a real name, uh, Larry Wayne, also a real name, and uh, Kenneth Wayne. Kenneth Wayne was my grandfather. Kenneth Wayne had three more sons, uh, Doug Wayne, Mark Wayne, and my dad's name is Stephen Wayne, and I am Curtis Wayne, and with me, the Waynes died. (laughs) But it's a great name. I I love my name, but it's not a superior name. It's not the superior name. You probably love your name. Your name is connected to your great-great-grandmother, and she was a wonderful lady, and meant a lot to your family, and your family loved you, so they connected you with that name. Maybe you're named after your grandfather, your grandmother. Maybe you're named after your dad. Maybe there's some kind of connection. Maybe your parents just knew a guy, and they liked that name, and they loved you, and so there you are, and you're like, my name's not superior. It doesn't mean anything to me, but whatever your name is, and however much you love it, it, it's not the superior name. There's just one, and Jesus has inherited that. You know, it reminds us of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, another song of the very first church. Chapter 2, verse 5. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God has also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Philippians tells us that the name, the superior name of Jesus is going to evoke a response from every human that has ever lived who's lived in the past, who's living in the present, and who will live in the future. That name is so powerful, it will evoke one response. And you don't get to choose what your response is. Every response will be the same. Every tongue and every knee will confess that Jesus, with the superior name, is Lord. That's not a choice you get to make today. I know we love our choices. We're Americans. Land of the free. You are not free to make this choice. This choice has already been made for you because God gave him such a powerful name that it will evoke this response from you. Our choice, our opportunity is when we make that confession. We get to decide when. We can wait until everything is over. And we will confess Jesus is Lord with our tongue and with our knees on our way away from him to eternal destruction. Or we can choose to confess now on our way to eternal life. But you don't get to choose and I don't get to choose whether Jesus is Lord and whether or not we confess that with our mouth and our knees. That choice has already been made for you because he inherited such a powerful and superior name. He's firstborn from the dead. Why? So that he might come to have first place in everything. So that he might come to win in everything. Now, I don't know about you, but 
sometimes I watch the news, it does not appear that Jesus is winning. Sometimes I count how many believers and followers are on my street, and it does not appear, according to the math, that Jesus is winning. Sometimes you look at the political system, and it doesn't appear that Jesus is winning. It's like a few years ago, my dad loves cars, and he's a mechanic, so I bought him some NASCAR tickets so he and I went to a NASCAR race I don't know if we have any NASCAR fans with us but uh, we went to the racetrack we got one rocking it love it <laughs> so we went to the racetrack the racetrack is bigger than you can imagine it, it's it's huge uh, there are more people there than you can imagine and it is louder than you can imagine and I bought what I thought were some pretty great tickets as close to the track as I possibly could afford but as soon as we got to our seat and the race began I realized that those were not the best seats to have because they were so close, after a few laps, you know, the, the people who are in the lead, they begin to pass the people at the back of the pack. And eventually, after a while, you can't tell who's winning and who's losing and what's happening. And they're all doing the same thing. They're all making left turns. That's all they're doing. And so from our vantage point, we couldn't tell who was winning. But they rent you these headphones that will plug you into the television broadcast. And the people with the better vantage point could inform us listening actually who was in first and where the action was happening. You know, some of us look at our life right now and you're in a lot of pain, you're in a lot of uh, doubt, you're in a lot of disappointment and the last season has been really hard and you look and you go, I don't think Jesus is winning at anything and if he is, he sure is not sharing it with me. But what the resurrection says to us today is we are not at the best vantage point to see who is winning And who is not? You are not in the best seat to determine the outcome yet. But the empty grave of Jesus is the better vantage point. It's the better view that he has inherited all things. He has a superior name. And he will come to first place in everything. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum today and you're like, actually, I am winning at life. I am awesome. My life is awesome. I am great. I'm not going to say that out loud, but I am great. I am handsome. I am successful. I have a great and secure job, which right now in Houston is something to brag about. You have a great family. Your family is literally the poster family for your school, your neighborhood, your club, your church, whatever it is. You're like a walking Instagram filter. Your family is. It's everything is sunlight and rainbows and unicorns. It's all great. And that's real. That's, that's your perspective on it. And, and so your, your work is good and your money is good and your family is good. You've got as many hobbies as you want. You can go on vacation whenever you want. Everything is good. You are winning at life. Therefore, you don't feel super compelled to need Jesus today. You're like, I'm here because my wife says that this is like the Sunday that I have to come with her and here I am and I'll be back at Christmas, but I don't feel a strong, uh, you know, strong connection to Jesus because I'm winning. And I think the resurrection says to you and I today that you don't know that you're winning. You're not in the best place to decide that. You're not in the best view. Even if you think things are really going well now, that does not mean that you have not already been lapped by the Son of God. He will come to first place in everything. Firstborn from the dead. First place in everything. So what does that mean? He's going to come to first place in everything. What does that mean for, for my life? What does that look like? Let's turn to the resurrection story. Matthew chapter 27. 
Verse 57, when it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And he approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there facing the tomb. When Jesus is first place, if you were going to write a few things down, when Jesus is first place, it means I show him the appropriate honor. It means I show him the appropriate honor. Joseph of Arimathea, he was a disciple of Jesus. The Gospel of John, when it tells this story, it actually tells us that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. And he was secret because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was essentially like the presidential cabinet of first century Israel. They were the group of people that the Roman Empire said, you know, we are in Rome and we have our Roman governors, but we're uh, depending on you and we're asking you to lead your own people. And so Joseph, he had a very important place and the rest of the people on that cabinet, they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They did not believe that Jesus was the Savior. And so it was a very scary thing to say that out loud. So he was a disciple, but he was a disciple secretly, which is good news today. If you want God to use you, if you want to play a significant role in God's story, you don't have to have been perfect up until this moment, which is good news. It may not be good news for you. It's good news for me. And it says that Joseph, after Jesus had died, he, he took to Pilate, the Roman governor, and he asked for Jesus's body. It says that he wrapped that body in new and clean and fine linen. One of the other, other gospel accounts of this story says that he actually went and bought it, which I think is so sacred, so respectful. He, he didn't just go to his own linen closet, open it up, and just grab a few things. He didn't say, you know what, he, he's going to be in a tomb in a grave and nobody's ever going to see him, so what does it matter? We'll just say, this is old and, you know, here's what we got. No, he actually went to the market and he bought new linen and it said he bought fine linen he didn't go to the discount store he didn't find the stuff that wasn't cut totally right and so they discounted it a little bit he didn't shop around for the cheapest price new clean fine linen and he used it to wrap the body of our lord which tells us today that when Jesus is in first place, we don't just reach for the thing that's easiest and most convenient. We don't just reach into our leftovers and make it an offering to Jesus. Really, that's how you know if Jesus is in first place. If he's come into first place in your life, whatever gets the best of you is what has first place, is what has preeminence, supremacy. Joseph, he went and bought the best and he wrapped Jesus' body. And then the story goes on. The next day, verse 62, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days I will rise again. Therefore, give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people he has been raised from the dead. Then the last deception will be worse than the first. 
You have a guard of soldiers, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. Then they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. Next thing I would love for you to remember, when Jesus is in first place, it means we've overcome blind pride and ambition. The Pharisees and chief priests, they were actually people who believed in the Messiah. They believed the Old Testament prophecies. They knew that the Messiah was coming, but by the time the Messiah actually did come, they had been promoted to places of significance and honor and esteem. They were at the top of the Israelite pyramid. There was no one above them. The Pharisees, they were 6,000 in numbers. They were religious leaders. It would be like combining a, a religion with a political party. And whenever they walked into the room, immediately they got esteem. The chief priests, they were responsible for the order of the temple. And there was nothing more sacred than the temple. These people were incredibly important. And not only that, but the Roman uh, government leaned on them to help lead the Israelite people, the Jewish people. So if Jesus really was the Messiah, it means that they would have to give up their place of authority. If they gave up their place of authority, they gave up their reason for being important. And their blind pride and ambition could not let them see that Jesus really was who he said he was. And if Jesus has come to a place of first place in your life, it means that you will have overcome your pride and ambition because it's Jesus who said, if you wanna be first, you gotta be last. If you wanna be the greatest, you've gotta be the servant. If you wanna save your life, then you need to lose it. He's the one who said, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is the biggest threat to our ego and our ambition. Chapter 28, verse one. And after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. And suddenly there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his robe was as white as snow. And the guards were so shaken from fear of him that they became like dead men. But the angel told the women, Don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been resurrected just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. And just then Jesus met them and said, good morning. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. You know, Mary and the other Mary, they're the real heroes of the resurrection story because they were there. And they weren't just there on that Sunday morning. They had always been there. They'd always been close. Because it's another way that you know that Jesus has come to a place of first place in your life when you're present. Mary and Mary, they're always present. In fact, the gospels say that as Jesus was going around preaching the kingdom of God and his disciples with them, you know, they didn't have time for regular jobs and vocations. So Mary and Mary and then the other women, they're actually the ones who went to work. They're the ones who went and secured funds so that Jesus could have all that he needed for his ministry. They were present in his ministry. They were present at his death. Only one of the disciples was standing at the cross when Jesus breathed his last breath. But many of the women were. They were present when 
Joseph laid Jesus' body in the tomb. They were standing there watching and they were present on this Sunday morning when they came to finish his burial permanently. They were present. You know, a lot of us, we look at other people and we say, oh man, I wish I had the faith that they had. I wish I, wish I had the relationship with Jesus that they have. I, I wish I could pray like they pray. You would be surprised how powerful the cumulative effect of showing up is. I remember when I was a a kid, you know, I I grew up in church. I've I've told you that many times. And growing up at my church was a lot different, I think, than growing up in this church. Because if you grew up in this church, literally, you grew up in the church. We were there all the time. We were there on Sunday morning. But before Sunday morning actually happened, we went to a thing called Sunday school. Anybody ever been to Sunday school? Raise your hand. It's kind of old school. It didn't really survive uh, the changing of generations, probably because of the name. It's the worst name ever, Sunday school. Who wants to go to school on Sunday? But we went to Sunday school. And you're like, well, I've never been to Sunday school. What's Sunday school about? Sunday school is all about opening up and studying the Bible and praying. That's what Sunday school is about. Then we went to regular church and what's regular church about regular church is all about opening up the bible and praying and then we would also add singing in the middle of regular church and then we would leave we would go to lunch and we'd be there for a while then we come back to church for sunday night church you're like well this must be a lot different yeah it was a lot different we would open up the bible and read it and pray and also singing but sunday night church was a little bit less informal in fact the musicians wouldn't actually prepare they just ask you to pull out the hymnal which is like the screen before the screen and you would just say the number that you wanted to sing. And so you'd be like, I want to sing number 53. And we'd sing number 53. And then somebody would say, I want to sing number eight. And we'd sing number eight. That was kind of how it was. And then we'd show back up on Wednesdays after work and after school and after all the post-work and post-school stuff, we'd come back to church for prayer meeting. And you're like, oh, finally, something different's happening. But prayer meeting wasn't just prayer meeting. We'd open up the Bible and study the Bible. And then we would pray. I was thinking about it the other day, about all the time that my parents went to church and we went along with them because my parents were big believers in the, oh, you're a teenager and you don't want to go to church. How much are you contributing to this family? Zero. Do you have a job? No. Well, then I own you until you do. So we're going to church. There's no debate about it. We're not taking a survey. We're going to church. So I'm sorry for all of you teenagers. I think you'll be glad one day that you're here. I hope. And we went all the time, all the time. And I I was thinking about it, you know, not all of them were great. Not every sermon is better than the sermon before. Not every worship set is as lively and enthusiastic as the one before, you know. Not every time can be a home run. Sometimes it's a bunt single just to get down to first base and that's enough. But the powerful effect of the accumulation of Sundays and Sundays and Wednesdays and Sundays and Sundays and Wednesdays is very powerful. Mary and the other Mary, they were present. And because they were present, Jesus appeared to them first. Not to the disciples. They were locked away, scared, already doubting. They showed up, they saw Jesus. So if next week you're like, I don't know, I'm tired. It's been a long week. I don't know. You never know when the risen Lord is going to land on you in a moment that blows your mind and heart wide open. And all you would have done differently than the time before is nothing. He just showed up one more time. And that's how you know Jesus is in first place. Because you just show up 
in our present. Verse 11, and as they were on their way to tell the disciples, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. So the earthquake and the angel. And after the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been spread among the Jewish people to this day. When Jesus is first, it means we've broken through our programmed patterns. I mean, think about these soldiers. What do we know about the soldiers? We know nothing except for they just do what they're told. They're told to go and guard the tomb and seal it. That's what they do. An earthquake happens. An earthquake. You're like, well, maybe earthquakes happened all the time there. An angel descended. Well, maybe it was just for a moment. No, descended and stayed long enough to sit on the rolled away stone. They saw all this. And how do we know they saw this? Because they were terrified. So they go to tell what happened. Hey, earthquake, angel. And and somebody tells them what to do. Here's money. And just tell everybody that you were sleeping. And the disciples came and stole the body. And they did what they were told. You know how they did, we know that they did what they were told? Because if you go to the internet right now and search possible theories for the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples stole the body will be at the top of that list. But they saw the earthquake and the angels and yet they just still did what they were told to do. Why? Because that's what they were programmed to do. That's, what, that's all they ever did. That was their pattern. You know, some of us live in such strong patterns and programming. Everything is just always as it is the same. We don't even have the emotional and mental bandwidth to consider life's most important questions. Even you're here today and we're talking about the things that matter most, but your mind is somewhere else because that's what you are programmed to do. And Monday is coming and here's what we have on Mondays and here's what we have on Monday nights and here's what we have on Tuesdays and here's what we have on Tuesday nights and here's what we have on Wednesdays and here's what we have on Wednesday nights, Thursdays, Friday, Saturdays. You're just in a program. But if Jesus has come to a place of first place in your life because he's firstborn from the dead, you will have broken through those pre-programmed patterns. And then it finishes like this, verse 16. And the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Why? Because he inherited all things and a superior name. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. When Jesus is first, we get responsibility. I love that that's how the resurrection story ends. And then the gospel of Matthew ends. One of the things that he does after becoming the firstborn from the dead is he hands them a significant part in his plan. And what is the part? It's that these disciples would go and make disciples, which you're thinking, what I'm thinking, which is, well, that's a pastor's job. You know, everything else I see, but that's a pastor's job to make disciples. Actually, it's not. There are no pastors standing on this mountain in Galilee, not one. You know who's standing on the mountain in Galilee? 11 cowards and deniers. So if you've ever had a moment where you're like, I really wanna invite 
somebody, this guy to church, but uh, you chicken out. You're qualified to make a disciple. If uh, at work somebody's been talking about the church and railing on the church and railing on Jesus, and you're like, oh, I don't know, should I speak up? Should I defend? And, and, and defend? And you're like, no, I'll, I'll sit this one out. If you've ever done that and then felt bad about it later, you were qualified to go and make disciples. He's the firstborn from the dead. He has first place. And part of his first place is putting responsibility in your hand to go and make disciples. And how do we do that? We do two things. Number one, we baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we teach people to obey all the words of Jesus. That's it. It's not complicated. Like, well, I don't know that much. But there's somebody that you know more than. You just teach them what you know. Your heart is the same heart as the Apostle Paul. You follow me as I follow Christ. I'm just gonna teach you what I know. And then you baptize that person. You're like, well, that's definitely a pastor's job. Actually, it's not. It's not. Man, how cool would it be? How cool would it be if by this time next year, by next Easter, you had the privilege and I had the privilege to kneel down next to somebody in the baptism waters and for you to be the one to say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because you had been the one who had first invited them. Because you had been the one who texted them all those morning, hey, I'm praying for you. I believe in you. I love you. Uh, You're the one who invited them to Bible study. You're the one that when they were making a bad decision, you called them on the phone and were like, I don't think you should make that. Let's go back to the Bible. What do you think the Bible says? I don't know everything, but here's what I know. You were the one who had journeyed with them and you were the one that they pointed out and said, I want you to be the one to baptize me. Ladies, how cool would it be for you to kneel down next to another woman, your friend, and be the one to push her under the water and raise her up in newness of life. Man, how powerful would it be that there's somebody at your workplace right now that God's putting on your heart, and by the next year, by next Easter, you could be the one kneeling down with your hand on his back and on his chest, and you were the one who plunged him beneath the waters and raised him up in the newness of life. You're like, no, that's a pastor's job. No, that's everybody's job. Because he's the firstborn from the dead. He's first place in everything, and one of the first things he wanted to do is put responsibility in your hands. And he knows me. He knows that I am nothing more than a coward and a denier apart from his powerful spirit that lives in us. First born from the dead so that he may come to first place in everything. So the question for all of us today is have you believed that? Not just are you around all that. You know, some of you grew up in church like me. Some of you have been to church before. Some of you have heard that before. You stopped on a television program and you've heard that. Not have you been around that, but have you believed that, that Jesus is Lord. Not that church is important, but that Jesus is Lord. You are going to confess that one day. But what if that one day was today? So I'd love for you to bow your heads and close your eyes in just a spirit of prayer. You know, somebody gave me the opportunity at one time to pray and confess Jesus as Lord. And I wanna give that same opportunity to you. And so in just a second, I'm gonna pray and I want you to repeat after me. And I want all of us to repeat it. You may have prayed something like this similar before. You've maybe believed in Jesus for a long time. That's not in doubt today, but I want you to pray it boldly and powerfully 
out loud as well, remembering when it was that you gave your life to Jesus. Some of us are thinking, no, I'm a sinner, I'm too I'm messed up. The truth is all of us have, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're like, well, I, I promised to come to church more. Or maybe I haven't been to church enough. That's not what it's about. Jesus said that he was the way and he was the truth and he was the life. And no one gets to the Father except through him. You're like, I don't know what I should do. I don't know all the rules. The scripture says, if you just confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, then you will be saved. So that's all we're doing right now. So all of us boldly and powerfully out loud, pray this with me. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are the son of God, crucified for my sin, raised to life. I give my life to you. I turn away from sin. I receive you now. Spirit of Prayer, Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you pray that prayer by faith today, then you have eternal life. You have now become a son of God or a daughter of God. You have a secure place in heaven. You have the presence of God with you always. This is the most important moment of your life. spirit of confession was still our eyes closed and heads bowed if you prayed that with me today and you're like no this is this is my day easter 2016 is the day that i know with confidence i have confessed jesus as my lord would you just raise your hand there's nobody looking around just as a confession jesus is lord that's what i'm saying today that's what i'm saying today god we pray for those who have lifted up their hands and we celebrate them today celebrate their new life. We pray that this is the beginning of an incredibly fruitful and powerful relationship with you. I pray that they would never doubt that you are with them. I pray that you would never cease to use them. And I pray that next Easter, there's someone sitting next to them, raising their hand to confess Jesus as Lord. We celebrate an empty grave celebrate the firstborn from the dead celebrate the winner of all winners today in Jesus name we pray amen Why don't you stand-